I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you, what got you there with Shonda Laney? If I study leaders who are absolutely exceptional at, at building relationships, here's something that many of them do that other people don't do. And if on the face of that, you find that powerful, worth emulating, worth doing yourself, then I think it's worth me sharing it with. Dr. Randall Stutman is a leadership scientist dedicated to exploring the behaviors and routines of extraordinary leaders. Labeled by Goldman Sachs as the most experienced advisor and executive coach on Wall Street, he has served as a principal advisor to more than 2,000 senior executives, including 400 CEOs. His work as an advisor and speaker has taken him to the White House, West Point, the Olympics, and the Harvard Business School. With a fierce devotion to understanding what makes leaders great, he is the founder of the Admired Leadership Institute, which is dedicated to uncovering and teaching the uncommon behavioral routines of the world's best leaders. Dr. Stutman promotes the idea that exceptional leaders engage in the same routines in all aspects of their lives, including in the family, in the office, with friends and colleagues, and with clients. If you're at all interested in becoming a better leader, and let's face it, all of us are leaders, then you will definitely enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. Randall, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Um, Great. How are you? I am doing really well. Uh, This is is a fun one for me. I've I've had the opportunity to take your admired leadership course, uh, and and it was one of the most profound paradigm shifts I've had around leadership. So this this is one of those conversations where I I get to learn a ton. Uh, I'm hoping the listeners can as well. One of the questions I've started with around 100 plus guests so far is around their routines and routines throughout the day just to set them up for success. And you're someone who's studied so much around this space. I would love to know what type of routines you have throughout your day you found the most success with. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to be all that interesting about routines. You know, I have, I have a couple of things that I do in particular that I've learned from other leaders. Um, 
the first thing that I do is I don't start the day uh, processing um, information or responding to it. <clears throat> so the, the cadence, once you get into it, uh, when you start processing right away is you stay there, um, you stay in that rhythm. And so I, I make it a habit, um, A, not to allow my phone anywhere near me uh, when I sleep, and then it's not there when I wake up. So I go about my morning for a little while, not more than about 30 minutes or so before I ever engage emails or texts or anything else. And so that kind of creates, and I start on a pro, uh, uh, start on productivity. I start being productive um, all the way from the beginning. So that, that's a, I guess that's a routine. Um, what else do I do? Um, at the end of the day, um, if I've actually listened to things or read things, which is most days, or I've engaged other people in some way and I've taken notes, I distill those notes down to key insights. Um, and, uh, and then I usually place those insights someplace uh, in one of my journals. Um, and some days I don't have any insights. It doesn't mean I don't have notes, but that's just the way it goes. Um, uh, other, other days I, I, you know, it takes me a little bit of time to be able to distill those and, and put those in the right places and so forth. So I can review them later. Um, those would probably be the only really two routines that I, I probably would say I'm religious about. Um, after that, the, the day is what the day is. Um, um, I try to, uh, throughout the day, um, create enough white space so I can actually move from, uh, uh, conversation to conversation, because that's what I'm doing most days is having conversations. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to make the transitions quickly enough, fast enough, in order to really focus on the next conversation. Making fast transitions is really important, uh, at least in my view. So I guess another thing that I do is um, uh, I kind of try to find segues or transition points so I don't move exactly from one conversation to another conversation. Uh, at least instantaneously. Um, and as much of that white space that I can create, um, that's a good thing. Um, and I try to do that fairly um, uh, purposefully all day long. Um, I think that's where I am. I don't think I have any other routines. No, no, plenty to hit on here. I'd love to jump into your distillation of knowledge. And we're hoping we can walk away from this conversation with some wisdom. And I know that's a focus for you, really distilling things down to wisdom. What is that actual process? You, you mentioned you're coming across things throughout the day. Is that going just in one specific journal or notebook? How do you organize that? So, so it's a behavior that we actually talk about in admired leadership around making personal change. And it's, a, it's one that's really, really changes a lot of things for people. And it certainly changed me a long time ago when I first uncovered it in a variety of leaders. And I thought, why don't I do this? And I started doing it and it's just been amazing. So, so the idea goes like this. So first of all, if you're somebody that's a, a learning machine, like a lot of us want to be and, and aspire to be, um, you're, you're constantly gathering information, data. You're, you're trying to gather new knowledge all day long. Um, uh, you're reading things. You're listening to podcasts. You're, you're talking to people. You're, you're, you're hearing a quote, uh, you're, all those things. And, and if you're like me, if you go to some presentation, um, you take eight pages of notes. I mean, you know, it's not like somebody says – only one smart thing. They say lots of smart things. And, and so you're writing all those things down. The, the problem is what most people do is they collect all those notes and they have no ability to use any of that knowledge or wisdom at all because all those, do, all those notes do is collect either some dust in, in a file cabinet or in a folder or, or they just simply stay buried and hidden in, inside your phone uh, or inside your laptop. So, 
So the key is, first of all, to, to understand that, that collecting information is just the first step. Um, and, and if you're good and you, you spend a lot of time doing it, and, and I have a lot of colleagues that are, that are really good at make, taking better notes than I do, um, they, you, know, you have a lot of it um, um, all day long, every day. Um, but then the next step is to be able to distill it down, to, to make it and look and say, what are the real insights? What's the wisdom here? Um, is there any? Um, is there anything I want to really keep? Um, <clears throat> and and what is it? And can I rearticulate it um, in a way where I can remember it? And so now you're in, engaged in the distilling process, where you're, you're taking eight pages, ten pages, twenty pages of, of notes and, and scribbles, and you're moving it to not many things. Um, two, three, four sentences in many cases. It's rare that, that I would actually distill something and, and grab a whole page of something. That would be really unusual. I want the, the process to, to, to create a kernel of what's the insight, what's the thing that I want to eventually remember. And then initially, uh, the way that I started um, is you put it in one spot, but then what you realize is that's first of all that that journal grows pretty fast um, if in, in, unless you're not an active learner. Um, but second, then it doesn't it doesn't enable you to um, to access the things that you really want because you're going to go searching for them. So so now after a couple of several decades of doing this, I have about 36 different journals where if I get a nugget around you know how people give feedback, then it goes into my feedback journal. If I get a nugget uh, around some just really interesting. Uh, wordage, diction, uh, just some language that I really think of, metaphor that I think is cool. It goes, it goes into my into my language journal and and so forth and so on. Stories I collect stories that I think are really powerful. So now, all of this is just the preamble to what really matters, and that is um, when you are able to, uh, with some level of of consistency, um, review those those insights. Um, and so I try to go through all of my journals once a month and I just simply scan them and just run right down them, run down all those insights. Now, one of the first things you'll do is you'll occasionally run into something that you've written down as an insight um, recently and you'll go, why, why did I think that was interesting? Like, why, what was I thinking there? And so you'll, you'll call that out. You'll, you'll simply scratch it out, cross it out in some way. No reason to review that anymore. Whatever you were thinking, it didn't hold up. Um, but the rest of it, you're making it available to yourself. So now wisdom is only wisdom if, in fact, you can act on it. And, and so now what you're doing by the review process is you're making it available for what's in your mind to be able to actually act on this stuff. And so you can, tell, you can remember those stories. You can instantly engage in those behaviors. You can think about you know, things and they come right to you. Most of us actually hear really smart things, and within th- within a short period of time, they're gone. We we have they're not available to us at all. Um, we would have to get lucky to cross them again to go. Oh, yes, that was a really important insight. Well, well imagine if you for decades uh, at a time were always in, in distilling things down and then reviewing all those things. I mean, people people will think you're really smart, by the way, when in fact all you're really doing is having a very um, specific process of of creating and using wisdom. And so wisdom isn't wisdom, again, unless you can act on it, unless you can actually um, use it. And the only way that I know that you can actually use it, especially if there's a lot of it. And, and by the way, there's a lot of wisdom in the world. It's just hard to, uh, to keep it available to yourself. Um, it's all about the review. The review is what enables you to be able to find it and, and find its power. 
and, and to make it part of your own and make, make it so that you've got the ability to act on that wisdom. And so that's a behavior that I teach lots of leaders when I coach and advise. We, I think so strongly of it, I actually put it in the change module in our admired leadership course and kind of explain it uh, and have a few other people explain how they do it too. Um, and it's just very powerful. In fact, um, you know, I know, uh, you know, Sean, that you're, you're, you're like this. I have quite a few colleagues that are like this. I have many, many clients that are like this and, and there's just, a, you know, we're learning junkies. We, we, we want to get wiser. We, we think the whole idea here is not just not to make the same mistakes over and over again, but, but to actually do things um, as effectively and as efficiently as we possibly can and, and to actually act smartly. And so the only way you can pull that off is to be a collector of, of insights, to distill those insights down, to review those insights, insights on a periodic basis. Um, there's no magic in terms of how it gets structured. Like, you know, my 36 notebooks will turn into 37 or 38 one day. Not because I'm getting so much, because I'll find an area where I go, I want to access that more quickly. And so I'm going to put all that stuff in there in, in a particular spot. Now, I still use physical journals, and I, I like that. I like the rewriting process that requires me to rewrite and distill my ideas down. I don't like things electronically because, at least in that sphere, because it, 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 it doesn't require me to look at it. These journals sit uh, on my right behind my desk uh, when I wake up in the, day, in the morning and I first go to my desk. I can pull them out any, any given time. I can always copy them if I'm worried about losing them or something of that nature. Um, but they, they force me to deal with them because, because they're physical and I see them all the time. And, and that's an important uh, part of, of learning in my, in my opinion too. So I actually prefer to, to write things down. I have, a, I have a few colleagues that have learned this behavior and that are really good at it. And, and they swear digitally they're able to pull this off. And I don't doubt it, by the way, but it wouldn't work for me. So that's what I do. And, um, and, and you know, it's a pretty, pretty important process for me um, every day, by the way. And, um, and at least once a month, usually what I don't do is I don't spend an entire day going through all the journals. What, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll usually spend some point during the weekend, um, just about an hour, and I'll go through a handful of, of the journals and just scan through and peruse uh, the insights. And boy, they're powerful once you, you grab them and you keep them and now they're yours and you can use them. And, and um, it's easy to regale your, lot, or your friends if you're a good collector of stories and quotes, I'll tell you that. Um, I even have a joke book. And um, so any joke that I've ever heard that I think is really, really, really funny, um, it goes in the joke book. And, um, um, and so I literally, if you were asked some of my friends, I could tell jokes for probably a whole day. Um, and they'd go, how could you remember all that? Well, I see them every month, right? I'm scanning them all the time or I'm calling them out. So um, that's more than you wanted to know, but that's kind of what, what I think is, is really important in terms of wisdom. Yeah, we ever do a part two might be stand up with Randall, but I, I love this, the collector of wisdom here. And I'm really intrigued by this. I, I recently shared something yesterday with my team and, and one of my team members. Um, it was probably about five bullet points from, from an excellent uh, podcast with, with Danny Meyer, the restaurateur. And he said, what's the one piece of wisdom if I was going to collect this and put this down? So I'm just curious about how do you share what you've uncovered with the team members? So, so before we did our digital course, it was actually an oral tradition. So we, uh, we, we, I would spend uh, about a week's worth of time in a, uh, in a learning kind of environment, a sharing environment, a dialogue environment with any of my colleagues. And we would go through 
a lot of the, the behaviors and, and routines that we've been able to find that we think count as leadership wisdom. And so they would write things down and catalog them and, and uh, engage in them just like anyone else. And so I believed in that oral tradition very much um, out of the Greek philosophy of, of, of if you hear it and you're able to write in your own words, it, it has a bigger impact on you. And so I've never been a big fan of passing out notes or doing no journals or notebooks for other people and, and cataloging things for other people. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that that's not powerful. I just have never been a fan of it. Um, so we've always had this oral tradition now of the several hundred behaviors we've been able to find over the years by studying leaders, um, uh, the kinds of things that make them um, what we consider admired. Uh, now we do it and we have a digital course so people can catch up on a hundred, you know, with some degree of speed and, and review them and, and learn them at their own pace and see examples and exercises and things of that nature. You've gone through it. So you understand how rich in that is. And that's only a, a fraction of what we know. Um, it isn't, it is a, probably the most important fraction, however. So we try to, to pick the things that, that really matter and, and can move other people and make them a whole lot better really quickly. Um, but there's lots more than that. And so now it, they at least get that start and then the rest of it's an oral tradition again. No, I love that. Something to, to certainly work on with, with my team. I, I would love knowing a little bit about the backstory though. And, and how did you first become interested in, in leadership? So it was something I did uh, in graduate school, and, and um, uh, I was fascinated first by conflict processes and conflict in large organizations, groups, relationships. Um, then I got into group dynamics and how groups make decisions um, <clears throat> and some of the things that happen uh, during that decision-making process. Um, and that's a really fascinating uh, literature and area. And in the last two decades, that, that area has exploded, and so really, really cool. Um, and from that, I got into uh, influence in organizations and how people influence and advocate in organizations. And slowly, you know, the idea of organizational behavior and leadership became a, uh, a primary way that I wanted to understand the world and, and, and make it better. And so um, I both, uh, you know, had went to school for those things. Um, I started teaching those things. And then I started a research, a set of research projects around, around leadership. And the literature is uh, is not that old, but it's 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 full of of ideas, of theories, and and frameworks and perspectives, and and um, and and I I started at least at a certain time I was very contemporary and knew knew most of the things that were being written. I was writing a lot of things at the time, um, and uh, and I got it asked um, to start working with a couple of leaders uh, in a in a large organization, some senior leaders. And um, I would I brought that information and the, that knowledge to bear, and and it was very useful. It was it was um, it had an impact. But but I got asked a lot of questions that I I, I knew I didn't have answers to. Um, most of the questions were hugely practical questions, and and the frameworks and the perspectives um, didn't didn't match up all that well. And I kind of felt I didn't feel like a fraud, but I, I felt like um, I wasn't as expert as I wanted to be. And and, and so I started a a new research program where. When I was studying leaders, um, I asked a different question, and, and the question that I simply asked was, "What do they do that that you and I don't do?" The, the exceptional leaders, and and that started uh, all the long pathway, and the, uh, the the journey that we now call admired leadership, and that was, um, I mean, that was more than three decades ago, and and um, and I've been engaged in that research ever since, and so it's been a fun a fun journey and process, um, but that's how it all started. 
I know you've mentioned me offline. You had two big aha moments throughout your career that really shaped you. I'd love for you just to dive into these and then we can segue from there. You know, I'm not sure I have only two. <laughs> I've had a lot of moments. You know, I'm not too smart. Um, every once in a while, something hits me and I go, how did I make that? Right? Um, uh, you know, so so the first one was, well, and, and, and I just described it just briefly to you. I mean, it was surprising to me that no one else asked that question. In other words, the, the paradigm of individual differences, which is what dominates um, the leadership literature, which is that people are really different. Granted, that um, uh, other people uh, that you are going to engage in as a leader are very different than you. So you got to know yourself first. You got to understand yourself, and then and then your job is to understand the, the differences that other people bring um, to bear. And then you need to adapt and flex on those differences. And so that's the idea that leadership is highly situational, highly contingent. Um, and so uh, so it's 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 very. Um, uh, uh, psychologically based, if you will. Um, and by the way, really valuable. There's, there's no one that gets to be a better leader without understanding themselves and, and understanding the differences that they have. But, but the big aha was when, when I would bring that information, those classification schemes, uh, those diagnostics, um, when I would operate from the advice and, and practical wisdom of that um, uh, idea or that, that approach, I wasn't making people very, very much better. Um, they, I, I, they really weren't changing. And I, I wasn't very powerful in the advice and the counsel that I could give people. So my first big aha was when I started asking the question and studying, and when, first of all, I had to find fabulous leaders. And so I had to define what fabulous looked like. And, 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 and one aha was um, a, a really kind of a smaller aha, but a big one for me um, in terms of its long-term impact um, was um, that followership is, is equal as results. We all, we all define leadership as being able to get things done and, and, and producing results, whether those be macro results in terms of earnings and, and, and market share and, and things of that nature, um, um, or, or smaller micro uh, results, which are really simply just being effective with people and the like. So results really matter. And, and in, in our culture in particular, we almost define leadership as synonymous with results. But, but the idea of actually having followership, that people want respect you and want to be around you, want to follow you from place to place, willing to do anything you ask of them because they believe in you and they trust and respect you. And, and in particular, they believe there's a reciprocal relationship of loyalty that exists that you would do anything for them. And so therefore they reciprocate with that. Um, um, that followership piece is a really big deal. And so there's a lot of results leaders that don't have it at all. And, um, and as a result, don't get nearly as much done as they could. Um, and so I started looking and, you know, one big aha, uh, again, small aha, but long-term big aha for us was let's define leadership, not just as results, but as, as having a, an important part of followership also. So let's look for both of those qualities when you define great leaders. And then, and then I started asking this question, you know, what do the, those kinds of leaders that actually have results and followership who were mostly admired by the people around them? Um, what do they do that other people don't do on an everyday basis? How do they make decisions? How do they give feedback? How do they build relationships? What are some of the things they do stylistically? What makes them credible? And so when I started asking that question, I, I was shocked that, that that question doesn't really exist um, from a, a research program. And so I thought, well, geez, either I'm really wrong or I'm really right. What's, what's going on? And so the aha was that I'm really right, that I, was, I started learning m- tremendous amounts of, 
of ideas that were really practical and powerful that I could coach and teach other people. And, um, and so that was aha. But then the really big aha was I found my first two admired leaders in a very large energy organization all the way back in the middle eighties um, in Chicago, where I was working. Um, I was a professor at the university of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I had uh, a particular CEO that I had a relationship with. He had found me through the literature and wanted to talk with me. And we built kind of a relationship, even though he was 20 plus years, my senior. Um, um, and, and so he gave me carte blanche to go and to study leaders. Um, I went in and with the idea of looking for the, for the leaders that had both results and followership. Um, and, and that's where the admired word came from for us. Um, because when I found these particular two leaders, um, when I talked to the people around them um, that knew them very well, both friends and family and colleagues and peers and even some, some customers, um, everybody used the admired word. I admired them for this. I admire the way they do that. I admire that. So I started using that label to describe them. And so when I found these first two admired leaders, I thought, wow, this is really, really fascinating because I'm learning all kinds of things by, by trying to figure out what they do that other people don't do. But the, the, the big insight was I thought that there was a quality about both of them that I thought was an anomaly. I thought, okay, well, that just happens to be a coincidence. But, but now, you know, fast forward 38 years later, um, uh, I, I now know that this is a quality of leadership. And that is when I first studied those two leaders, I found that they were not only admired in the workplace, but they were admired by their kids. They were admired by their spouse. They were admired by their friends. They were admired in their community. They were admired in the places they worship. They were admired every place they went. And that's because they learned to do some things all the time. That this idea of behaviors and routines that they were wedded and and committed to um, were the things that helped create that aura of admiration in other people's eyes. So while they, they knew themselves and they adapted and flexed and were contingent, in situations, they also did some things all the time. And the big aha was, you mean, if you know how to give feedback to a 58-year-old, it really should work with an eight-year-old too. And, and if it doesn't, it's probably not all that effective with the 58-year-old. And so, so the idea that this is the whole leader, that when you make, when you teach somebody and you understand, you actually have leadership wisdom around something, say like giving feedback, it works in every aspect of your life. And the best leaders do it in every aspect of their life. Again, they may do it differently. Obviously, when you make decisions um, in a strategic setting in an organization, it's not the same as making a decision um, for where the family is going on vacation um, at holiday next year. But actually, the process is not all that dissimilar, just some of the data and and maybe the way you go about it and and enact it is. And so so when you're really good at leadership, um, you you do the things that you believe in everywhere. And, and that was a big aha. I mean, the idea that, you know, that I can find behaviors and routines and they make you a better parent, they make you a better spouse, they make you a better friend and a better team leader and better with the person that you report to and better with your clients and customers. Like that was such a, such a mind-blowing thing to me that we could, we could then help and figure out we had, a, we had to approach the entire wholeness of a leader and a person. That that was just the biggest aha. I just I just it just floored me. In fact, 38 years later, it still floors me. Um, I'm still like, wow, like that's so, so profound and insightful and, and so true in my experience since then. 
Um, you, you, I mean, listen, excellence um, doesn't get turned on and turned off. I mean, you've never met anyone that runs fast and then one day wakes up and runs slow. You've never met anybody that's really smart and one day is really dumb, right? Pe- people who are really good at something don't turn it off. Well, doesn't it make sense then that leaders that really have an, an insight as to how to do something that's a little more effective than anyone else, how to build a relationship, um, say with clients, that they would actually bring that same idea to their marriage and that same idea to their friends and build the relationship with their friends and the same idea in other spheres. Because once you really have an insight and a practice that works, you don't turn it off. It becomes a part of who you are. That That's just, to me... Um, Gosh, how does everybody else miss that? I don't. I, I'm glad they missed that, you know, because that that's given me a great livelihood. But um, how do they miss that? I don't know. Yeah, Randall, when I took your course, I think that was the biggest aha for me is just this wholeness that you talk about. How I how I operate in the business world is the exact same from family dynamic relationships as well. That's what that's what I absolutely loved. Any idea why other people weren't asking those questions? They still don't ask those questions, Sean. I mean, you know, so all these decades later that I've been doing this, listen, I think the, the thing, the real reason is the other paradigm is too strong. It's too seductive. We, we are, we, we try to understand why we, we human beings are why people, you know, why, why do people do things like let, let's figure out, you know, what makes you tick and you talk. Right. And so we like the theories and the explanations as to why things occur. What we miss is that understanding why doesn't necessarily make you better, that you still need tools in order to act. And so so but the the other paradigm, the individual differences paradigm, which is so predominant, every university, every corporate HR department um, across the world, by the way, subscribes to that viewpoint as the primary way to think about leadership and about being effective as, as, as a leader, um, it's so powerful and so seductive that it shuts down um, the conversation or the way to look at other leadership from another angle. Um, people tell me all the time, well, if you're looking for commonality uh, around the best leaders, you, you're not going to find anything. Well, well, I can tell you, and you now know just by looking at the course, I mean, we know hundreds of routines and behaviors that are not well known, many of them unknown, right? That all the best leaders subscribe in, subscribe to and use that. In fact, they've never met each other. They're from different countries. They're different generations and the like, and, and they all do some of the same stuff. And, um, <clears throat> you know, most of the, the academics that I'm still in, in contact with will say, well, if you find universals, they're self-evident. They're, they're, you know, they're walking the talk and keeping your promises and showing up in a crisis and admitting your mistakes are the things that we've always known. We've known them for decades and there's nothing powerful about them other than as reminders. And my response is, well, you've been eating canned vegetables all your life. It's time for you to have some fresh vegetables. If you ask a different question, you find some really insightful things and behaviors and routines that are in fact universal, timeless, contextually free in the sense that they operate in almost all contexts, um, uh, that they are uh, somewhat insightful, profound, but immensely actionable. And, and, and here's the beautiful part. If you, when you understand a real routine of behavior that meets, the, that, that meets those criteria, you should be able to explain it in about three or four minutes. And I can. I can explain any of the behaviors in three or four minutes. It might take you a little bit longer to get examples and, and other things in your head to really bring it alive for you. But but the wisdom is brought to a you know to a really small point where we can simply articulate it very quickly. So I think it's that the other paradigm is just so darn strong and seductive. Um, 
Um, and uh, even in our own, our own team, you know, people like to ask psychological questions, individual difference questions, um, because they're curious and, and they should be. So I'll, I'll describe a behavior and then somebody will say, do you think that, you know, different generations deal with that behavior differently? And I'm going, OK, you, you just you just entered the dark side. Right. You know, you went you went to the other side. And, and by the way, the other side's really important. Um, but can we just stay on this side for a little while and, and talk about the commonness and universality of of, of excellence and leadership excellence rather than moving toward differences all the time. And um, people are well-trained uh, to, to do the opposite. And so I think the other paradigms are so strong and it's going to continue to be strong. How do you run into the problem then? And this, this is around talent acquisition and talent development, bringing new people into the organization that are willing to, to look at things from a different prism. Yeah, well, to a degree, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'll give you a little inside baseball because I wind up having to insult people when I bring them into our organization. And the reason I do is because I have to shake them up and um, because I have to know that they're willing to want to learn a wholly new, new way. So the majority of people that join our organization are very, you know, somewhat senior people. They've been doing um, either coaching or advising work for quite a long time in many cases. And, um, and I'll sit down with them and I'll, I'll like, you know, their, their aptitude. I'll like their approach. I'll like their, 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 their general style. I like everything about them. But, but now I have to convince them they don't know anything, which is not a fun thing because it's not just from a, a standpoint of hubris. It's a standpoint of if I don't convince them that, that they're, they, they, don't, they don't have the power they need to have, then there's no reason for them to be in our organization. So what I typically do is I'll say to a, a prospective coach, all right, so decision-making, pr pretty powerful stuff, right? Is You don't know anybody that's a great leader that isn't also a great decision-maker, and it's central to, to being considered a leader of prowess. Would you agree with me? And they, of course, agree. And, they, and I say, okay. So um, I have an assignment for you. I have a, a CEO that I'm going to give you as a, as a coachee. And, and, and their main, they're, by the way, they're really talented. They, this is their fourth or fifth run at the CEO thing. They've made some fabulous decisions, but they want to be world-class. They, they want to improve their decision-making. So, so in the process that I'm going to sit you with them and, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to make them better decision-makers. So, so give me an outline of what some of the conversations and some of the topics, as well as some of the advice and and counsel that you're going to give them. And, and please, before you answer me, don't, don't be giving me some rational model of decision-making or telling me the three heuristics or the, the three biases, you know, don't tell me confirmation bias. They, they, by the way, they know that one. Okay. And so they've been to, you know, they've been to all the great executive education around the country. And so, so tell me something that, they, that you're going to tell them that they don't know that's going to propel them forward as decision-makers. And, and they can't answer me. And, and there's a reason because they don't have that level of practical wisdom in their head. And now, okay, I can say, okay, so now you and I can admit that you that deep down, right, you know lots about decision-making, but you don't know anything powerful about decision-making that can make people better. Would you agree with me? And they, you know, they reluctantly go, in most cases, yeah, okay, you've made your point, you've embarrassed me, like, what's your point? I go, how about if I spend, you know, we spend the rest of your career and I show you those things and then you start teaching other people. Right. And that's how we get there. And um, and it's not it's not all that, you know, initially it was fun, but it's not fun anymore. OK, um, um, it's a little bit painful, in, in fact. And and some people bristle at that conversation and they they get annoyed at themselves. I've even had some people go away um, upset after that conversation and then come back to me and say, OK, I admit it now. Right. All right. I don't have anything powerfully practical 
uh, to teach people about decision making. So, you know, what do you know that I don't know? And um, and again, it's not about me. I'm not I'm not any smarter than anybody else. But we've been we've been uncovering this stuff for years, and and we could I could literally spend two years in a, in an advising uh, uh, capacity with any given leader just on decision making, you know, not, never discuss anything else, and never processing their their own insights. So that idea of, of processing people from a coaching standpoint. Um, is really inexpert in my opinion. The idea that I'm, you know, all the wisdom exists in their head and that that's where I'm going to, you know, try to find it. And, you know, how do you go about making decisions and what do you think about here? And, all, you know, anyway, we, that, that's useful to a degree, but it's not par- as powerful as people think. I mean, the best leaders in the world, if they're coming to you for advice and counsel, that they, they want, they want some practical wisdom. And if you can't produce it, then, then they're not all that interested in the conversation. And by the way, if you went to a tennis professional to be a better tennis player and they started asking you and only like, well, what do you think about tennis? How, how do you play tennis? Right. And they never had any any advice for how to how to improve your backhand or your forehand or how to how to show you to serve or where your feet were, you know, because they didn't have any insight. You would say, well, they're not a very good tennis professional. I think that's true of the majority of people that talk about leadership. I, I don't know how you can be that proud of yourself and that good unless you know some really deep practical things about the advice and counsel you give other people. Have you improved in terms of spotting that, the the people who are willing to say, what do you know that I don't know? Can, can you tap into that earlier to understand if this person is someone who can develop quickly within an organization? Uh, no, the answer is no. <laughs> but now because of the digital course, um, because of my leadership digital, um, we're having people come to us and say, this stuff is amazing, right? How do I learn more of it? And how do I become associated with that kind of, of, of programmatic research as well as um, advising? And so it's helping us a little bit. Some people are finding us now that are interested. That doesn't mean they have the right aptitude or style or things that could do this um, for a living like so many of the people in our firm do. But, um, but at least that helps a little. But no, we've not been great at it. Um, to be 100% honest. Um, um, Like anything else, if you go look at some of the largest consulting firms in the world, they will tell you that they probably get and have deep interviews and go deep with 50, 60, 70 people before they find one that they think is capable of doing uh, the deal. And, um, and we certainly would fall into that same category. We're not, we're, we're, we, it's a volume game for us and has been, but we'll see, you know, this is new for us, this, this admired leadership digital. So we'll see if it produces and attracts some new people that, that kind of screen themselves for us a little bit, but, but that's where we are. Well, you're, you're someone from my understanding in terms of seeing things differently than others and, and having paradigm type shifts. So I'm wondering, even in terms of vetting out that aptitude within people, are there certain things that, that you've uncovered that you find these people tend to work out best within your organization? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, Sean. I, nothing that comes right to mind. And by the way, I'm no paradigm. Uh, I had, I had one, you know, one in big insight um, around asking a different question, um, which I think is just a huge paradigm. I haven't been all that insightful since then, just so that you know. Um, and so, you know, I'm no, I'm no uh, thought leader, um, uh, at least not, not in my view. So, um, but yeah, I, I, there's nothing in particular that comes right to mind to that question. Yeah, Randall. Uh, Ever, ever since my athletic career, I mean, this has been a decade plus, I, I've tried to study the best leaders, uh, people who I admire, people from a distance, and your, your course was, was the best leadership course I, I've ever taken, bar none. Uh, so uh, I think your paradigm shifting, uh, it, 
is more apparent to others maybe but uh, we we can move on from that but i, I do appreciate what you've done we'll send you that check later yeah so. right no 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 I, i'm not incentivized at all here it's truly something that i i took a great deal away yeah. from um nothing, nothing pleases me more and and um you know listen uh, it was a big struggle to ever produce this thing and 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 put it out and i was against it for decades and and um you know most days i wake up and i'm really glad that it exists um, and, uh, and I'm really pleased that you found so much value and a lot of other people are too. So that makes me very happy. So I'd even love to dive into behaviors just a bit more and understanding the process, the research process around uncovering one of these behaviors. What does that look like in a little bit more depth? So, so first we go about trying to understand is, you know, if, if somebody is potentially admired. So, um, so are they an admired leader? Do they, do they have a track record of uh, extraordinary results? Um, by what objective measure can we make sense of that? And, and then do they have the level of followership that we would, we would say constitutes an, an unusual level of, of people trusting and respecting them and the like? And, and so, so first we have to identify you know, somebody worthy of study. Now, that's got, gotten a lot easier because the literature and, and the general media helps identify people. And there's lots of data around people. Um, not, not, it wasn't as easy when I first started doing all of this. Um, and, and we have a couple of other shortcuts now, uh, that we can use to identify, um, admired leaders. So, so now you find somebody that at, at best, you know, at best they're admired leader at worst, they're either a results-based leader and lack followership at an extraordinary level or they're a followership leader and, and lack results at an extraordinary level. So there was somebody worth studying. So, so that's where we start. The next is we, we treat them as a case study, um, a, a case study of one, where we're, we're, we're trying to now collect data about who they are and what they are. And so um, by that, I mean, we're looking at in any interviews that they've ever given, um, anything that's been written about them. Um, uh, and some of those things can, can pop up in you know, some agent uh, kinds of, of documents and journals and magazines and the like. Um, you know, and then, and then we're looking for artifacts, um, speeches, outlines, performance reviews, um, uh, emails, whatever artifacts we can get our hands on. And, and then we're also, um, we're trying to, uh, if we can interview people that know them very well, if we get, if we get per, total permission, we'll, we'll interview everybody around them, um, including, uh, friends and family, which are usually very insightful, um, by the way, the people that get a chance to see them the best and the most often, um, including their own leaders. And then we'll interview them. Um, although you'll be surprised at how few of the best leaders know exactly what they do. Just like great ball players, great athletes, they oftentimes don't know what makes them so good, um, what, they, what they actually do. Um, if we can, we'll actually observe them in different settings. And so that, that's wonderful. So every leader we study, we have either a big file or a small file, depending on what kind of access we can get. And, um, and whether we, you know, we're able to study them more, more rigorous, rigorously or, or from a distance. And, and from that, we're really discerning, try to, trying to discern two things. Number one, what do they do as leaders every day? What, what's their process? What's, what are things that they're engaged in? What kind of style do they have? Who, who are they as leaders? I'm not interested who they are as like, you know, historical people, demographically, third born. I couldn't care less, you know, any of that. I'm, I just want to know what they do. And then, and then the next thing, of course, we're looking at is what do they do differently that other people don't do? And, and that's what we're really focused on. In fact, that's the questions. Those are the kinds of questions we're asking of all the people that surround them. 
So I'll, I'll ask people, you know, uh, a friend or a family member or a colleague, you know, what do they do that you've not seen other people do? What, what are the kinds of ways that they motivate people? How do they, how do they, how do they make that change? What are some of the, the, the steps they took um, that, you don't, that you don't think are that common? Is there something they believe that you don't think other people believe? You know, ha- have you seen them um, give, you know, coach more junior people to success? What, what do they do every day? How have they given that feedback and, and so forth? So that, that process. So now you've got, you know, a case of one person and um, and and then what happens, of course, is you can go backwards and look at all those individual leaders and then start to look for patterns. Um, and by the patterns aren't always obvious. And once you see them, they smack you in the head. But until you see them, they're really blind. I just did this this last weekend. I found a, a routine. Now, it tends to be a situ this this routine tended to be situated, not universal, <clears throat> not what we would consider something that um, would be something we would coach on because it doesn't apply in all contexts, but, but it actually solves a particular problem. So it becomes advice, really good advice, powerful advice for us. So you find this routine. And now that I found it, um, I've, I've, I've found um, just by going through some of our data, I found probably 30, 40 different examples of it. And, and prior to seeing the pattern, I, I, I couldn't see it at all. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what those examples were. Those were just words on a piece of paper telling me something that other people did. Um, and so that's how it works. And then once we have a behavior routine that we think um, really matters, that, that there's a real pattern, um, we'll, we'll then go really deep into data and see, can we, can we find dozens of examples and, and see it in other of the, of the cases that we have? We have tens of thousands of cases, and over 15,000 leaders that we've studied. And, and in, in the process of that, then, then once we find that pattern, now I have to be able to put it into and articulate it in a way that makes sense instantly to somebody else so that it has instant face validity because I'm not making a causal claim in our, in our grounded theory approach to studying admired leaders. What I'm making is a, a claim of empirical pattern. That is, this is what the best leaders do. The best leaders do this. Maybe you should think about emulating that, but that's your call. Your call. I'm not making the claim that if you do this, then you're be, you'll become admired. That if you do this, you'll be more effective. What I'll say is, if I study leaders who are absolutely exceptional at, at building relationships, here's something that many of them do that other people don't do. And if on the face of that, you find that powerful, worth emulating, worth doing yourself, then I think it's worth me sharing it with you, right? And, and that's, that's our approach to this entire piece. Now, that upsets a lot of academics and empirical kind of scientists um, because they, they only think in causal relationships and correlations. And, and, and I'm totally uninterested because my experience has been like those things are far and few between. And we can spend an entire lifetime only focusing on something really, really small that has no practical value forever. And, and so, so and even, even when we find one of those causal relationships, people generally don't um, believe it or do it in any kind of um, consistent way, even across the whole culture. Um, and so, so my view is, no, I just want to find the patterns of what the best leaders do and share that what those best leaders do with other people and, and then put that in my own life and hopefully impact other people's lives with it. And so that's the whole process of what we do. You mentioned that new routine. I, I feel like could you dive into that just just briefly? Because I feel like that would really it, add some clarity. It, it's not it's not developed enough. I don't I don't even know how to articulate it very very well. Right. Um, 
Um, it, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll share it with you, but I'm going to, I'm going to wreck the whole, the whole process here because it just isn't ready for prime time. Right. Um, um, but, but the inkling of it is um, this notion of debt in relationships. So, so when we're in a relationship, um, um, we, we want, you know, the best relationships are equal. The best relationships are mutually influential. They're highly reciprocal. Now, now that's an attainment we're trying to get. We don't all get there with all most of our relationships, but 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 most people that study relationships and engage in relationships would say the best authentic rich relationships are ones where if I ask the question who benefits most from this relationship, both parties would say, I, you know, I do. It's me, right? I mean, because there's a reciprocal exchange of value in the relationship. So so the idea of debt that one individual inside a relationship owes the other a debt creates an imbalance, creates a discomfort. Um, so if all of a sudden, Sean, you and I know each other, but not very well, if all of a sudden I did you a big favor, I did this massive favor for you. And, um, you know, you were, you were moving from one house to another house in your community and I was in town and, and I said, I'll show up and I'll help you move. You go like, I, well, I really don't even know you. And now I come and I help you move dirty boxes all day long, get get sweaty and, you know, lift things and even hurt my back and all those things. Now you feel indebted to me. Now, now the people that study things like cognitive dissonance will say, well, that's a good thing for your relationship because, you know, Sean, you're going to feel more committed to Randall. And, and I would say, well, I don't doubt that, but that's not the point here is that the debt actually creates a, a discomfort and an imbalance in that relationship that is not mutual and reciprocal. And, and it's a problem now in that relationship because it creates an awkwardness. And, and you'll feel like, first of all, you don't really know me, so why did I do that? So there must be some intention. I, I have some motive. I have something that, you know, maybe even inimical going on here, right? And, and so you might avoid me or you might even treat me not, not closer but even farther away because I've created this discomfort by doing something extreme, like in, in this case a favor, that I, that I shouldn't have done that early in the relationship. Same thing is true in a, in a really well-developed relationship, by the way. If all of a sudden we're in a really well-developed relationship and we go on vacation and I pay for it all, right? It's, it's my treat. Well, that, well, hold it, hold it. We've been peers. We, we've been, we've been colleagues. We've been, why would you pay for me? Right. It creates like that. That's insulting. That's right. And so, so the behavior that I started finding, and again, it's not ready for prime time, is this notion that what happens if I actually, when I, before I do you a favor, I actually ask you for a favor. So imagine, Sean, I say to you, listen, I, I'm out of shape and, and I, I need some exercise. And I've been looking away for, to exercise and really, really have a day where I do nothing but sweat and really pound it. I would love to come over and help you, right, move boxes all day. And I know like that's, you know, a little early in our relationship for me to offer that, but you'd be doing me a big favor. You, you'd be doing me a great service if you would let me do that. So let me do me this favor and, and let me come over and help. And what that does is it reduces the level of debt. It reduces the level of imbalance. Well, what I started to find early on now, and again, it's not ready. And I'll say it one more time. It's not ready for prime time um, is that there's lots of examples of giving and doing a favor or asking for a favor. Okay. As a, as a way of giving a favor to create that, to keep that balance in a relationship. Now that's a very situated problem. Most of us aren't having issues with debt and imbalance in relationships. But, um, you know, it's not unusual to come totally unusual for early in a relationship or later in a relationship where all of a sudden we want to do something extreme for somebody because it lends itself to that right now. 
and we're good people and the like. And so this is the way an admired leader would probably go about doing it. They wouldn't just simply do the favor and, and give you, right, the case, you know, the case of, of, of wine uh, in their cellar to say, you congratulations, right? They'd say, my cellar is just absolutely packed and I want to break out and clear out some inventory and so I can buy some new wines. So you're doing me a favor if you'll if you'll accept my gift of, of a couple of cases of great wine, because um, it, it's something that helps me. And so they'll, they'll ask for a favor in order to give a favor. Now, how powerful is that? Again, it's very situated. It's not like an admired leadership behavior that we would go out and coach and advise about, but it's the inkling to something. And at some point I'll be able to articulate that in a much more powerful way. And I'll be able to then bring it as advice uh, to people who are like, it's almost like for, you know, it's the ninja version of relationships. Like, like the, you, like, but if you're really good at relationships, that those kinds of nuances, the, those kinds of, of things right on the edge uh, of what it really means to create, I mean, details really matter. All of a sudden that will be meaningful to you. It won't be something that you'll ever see in a Mark leadership course because it, because it, it's very much about a particular problem in a relationship uh, rather than relationships in general. But it's that kind of um, next order understanding that people who are already have achieved mastery go, that's really interesting. Let me play with that. And that's one of those. I love that. I, I love playing at the margins there. So that's a, that's an excellent example. And, and Randall, if you're clearing out the cellar, uh, please feel free to send it down yeah. here to South Florida. So, uh, big, big advocate you. of wine. <laughs> I got you. And, um, I actually really like that, that, that you dove into that. So I appreciate it because it, it dehumanizes. I, I almost thought for a second here, you have decades and decades of experience that you come across something and you've got it perfectly distilled down. Uh, so that, that was fantastic. This has me thinking a lot around mentorship. And I've even found this in my own life that when someone's been a great mentor for me, I, I just feel indebted that I could never bring them the amount that they've brought me. How should I be thinking through that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I think I think the, the reciprocal uh, exchange in a mentor relationship is for you to take people seriously, for you to be highly thankful, uh, and for you to actually use the advice and wisdom that you get on purpose, and to make sure that people know about the examples of it. They need they need to they need to realize that they're having the influence. People want to know that they've had your, the influence on you that 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 they hope that they're having. So. So, you know, I, I always liked the old story I, I, one of my colleagues told me at one point. Um, they, they, were, they were running for an airplane, not, not in the old days, but in, not, that, you know, not that long ago. And so they came to the counter at, 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 at the uh, check-in, and, and it, they were really close, and they didn't have bags. So uh, they got their, their, their ticket and so forth, and, and they went up, and, and the agent, the gate agent, not the gate agent, the uh, agent at the check-in, um, had said to them, you know, you might be able to make it, please, please, Harry, here's how you can get there a little faster and so forth and so on. And, um, and so that person went, got through security, made it to their gate just before they closed the door, got on the plane and made the plane. Well, a couple of weeks later, they were going through the same airport and they went up to the gate agent and they said, you know, by the way, thank you so much. I made the plane that day. And she, and she remembered and she said, thank you so much for telling me. I, I have so many people that have the experience, but I never know whether they make it or not. I never know whether they actually make it on the plane. And it's so dissatisfying that I, cause I never know. And so thank you for taking the time and the energy to tell me that you made the plane. That's, that's really what meant, what mentors want. You know, did you make the plane? Did, 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 I, did what I say work? Did it have influence? And I, 
five years later, did something I say mean something to you? That's the big reward for the mentor. That's how you reciprocate with a mentor is, is you make sure that their influence is known. Not falsely, by the way. Not everything they say and do is going to have an impact. But when it does, make sure that you tell them. And that's the biggest reward for them as mentors. How important is storytelling in all this? You tell these great stories um, here today on the show and throughout the course, and they really resonate, and then I tend to remember them so much more. Is that one of the key things great leaders do? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything about storytelling per se. Um, I think it's more about the human condition than it is about leadership. Uh, I think we remember things, we store things. There's lots of data that suggests that that episodes and stories, you know, are the way that we recall and retain um, information, and and we 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 can make sense of random information by putting it in story kinds of frames and, and frameworks. And so I think stories matter. I, I've never seen anything in particular. I, I could show you not our data, but other people's um, uh, data around how better storytellers tell stories better. Um, uh, but I've not seen anything um, pervasive around admired leaders anyway, about that they tell stories at this particular time or they tell stories in this particular way. Um, but, I, but I agree with you. I think the ability to, to bring ideas alive um, and have them um, remembered um, falls on one of two things, either stories or models. And, and that's how we learn. We learn through stories and we learn through models. Now, I find models even more interesting um, uh, from a leadership standpoint, um, but, but stories are really, really powerful. I like to tell them, and I, I think every other human being likes to tell them. We have whole cultures that are, that are, are grounded in, in storytelling, or ours included. And so stories are just ubiquitous to the human condition but nothing that I've been able to see uh, so far anyway around how stories operate differently for the best leaders other than they tell them like everyone else um, and, and use them powerfully. Hmm. Randall, I want to circle back to something we were bringing up at the start of the show, and that's around knowing yourself. And, and I feel like if you don't know yourself, you don't know your values, you're really operating on a weak foundation. So I'm wondering for you, someone, someone who's much more experienced, has been in this game way longer how long have you known yourself, and then how does that change over time? So, so there's a lot of different ways to come to that question, and, I, and I'm a poor one to ask because I am not wedded to that, um, that paradigm. Um, but, but understand, so first of all, I think there's lots of different dimensions and qualities you can learn about yourself. So you should, you should know some of your predispositions and some of the things that are baked deep in your DNA that you've probably inherited from, from your family. Um, and, and biologically that you carry with you. And so they're, they're definitely those things. And I think, I think for you not to know them means that you're kind of operating at a, at a deficit. Um, but I think there's other things to know about yourself or like in terms of your values that are, are evolving all the time. There are things to know about um, uh, the things that you like and dislike, the things that bother you and don't bother you. The, those things really matter too. And so, but those are much more um, ephemeral. They're, they're moving all the time and changing to some degree. Now, maybe values aren't, uh, they're fairly stable, but, but things like what brings you joy or, or pleasure can change, you know, quite drastically as you age and, and the like, what's important to you, what really matters and the like. So, uh, so I think it's important to know, but there's a lot of things that other people can bring to you that all of a sudden shake you up. Like I remember when um, I first had the epiphany and you know, another aha for me, that success in life is really about how many people you matter to. 
because I always thought success in life was about having influence. And that's a particular kind of influence. But, um, you know, the idea that, you know, in what relationships, like who really matters, um, who do you really matter to and, and who really matters to you? And that at the end of your life that you're going to judge yourself, because I've interviewed lots of people at the end of their lives, by the way, and that you're going to judge yourself not by, you know, what strategies, what decisions, you know, what, but by the quality of the relationships that you still have where you matter to those people. And I don't mean in terms of just had you had influence on them. Again, that's how I always saw it before. But, but that right now, this moment, you know, you're important to those people because of who you are and what you are and how you engage them. And, 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 and when I had that idea around that that's what success is, um, it changed a lot of things for me. Now, that, that's all of a sudden, that's something I've, I've been able to keep for ever since I, I, I decided that really is what success is. Um, I, I, by the way, I'm not making that argument to other people. That's how I'm defining success. Um, um, I hope you find it compelling, but that, that's up to you. Um, but um, that's about knowing myself. Now that I know that and I've decided that that's what I'm committed to, no surprise, I'm trying to matter to more people. Okay. And so, so there's a lot of things about knowing yourself that also happen in the experience of life where you say, you know what, I, I, I really, I, I, know, I know that this matters or this is important to me and I'm now going to commit to it. That's a different kind of knowing. And so I think they go both hand in hand, that the knowing of who you are psychologically and respecting that knowledge, what, what, how, you, how, how you get angry, what, what, why do you react to certain things? What, what, why is it that um, you, you find uh, certain things so bothersome? Um, what, what, what about your personality makes it so that you, you don't like large parties and groups? You prefer to find your energy from a book and from yourself. You know what? Those are things that are, are about your psychology, and I want you to know them and respect them. But I also want you to, to understand that that a part of knowing is about creating yourself through experience and then committing to things, just like you would commit to a relationship. And and in that process, that commitment requires you to think about it deeply and then to act on it. And that's a different way of knowing yourself. And I think both sides really matter. No, that's really helpful. You mentioned you've interviewed a lot of people at the, at the end of their lives. What particular stage in life of the people that you've interviewed do you think has been most insightful for you? Hmm. I can tell you where it hasn't been insightful, and that is when people are first nascent and, and inexperienced and just becoming leaders for the first time. Um, they don't know what they don't know in a really big way. Um, and so I haven't been able to find a lot of value in that. Um, now, that doesn't mean there's not value there, but I haven't been able to find it. Um, and obviously, the more experience people have, sometimes experience shuts down things, stops you from seeing things, requires you to make assumptions. But um, in the leadership world, um, I, I, I find that that wisdom and experience comes, you know, comes together. Um, and so so at least in, 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 in my personal experience, um, I'm more likely to find insight with people that are either right in the throes of an issue or that have seen that issue many, many times. And, um, and, and, and when you've seen something many, many times, you start to see your own patterns as to what works and what doesn't work or what is important and isn't important. And, um, and so when I can find somebody later in their careers or after their careers that are still cerebrally connected to their, to their work, to those ideas, and then I can ask them for their insights, I can find sometimes much more insightful um, things. But 
again, it's a, it's a pretty big mix. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll learn from anybody from anywhere. And, um, you know, if they say something valuable, I couldn't care less where, where they are in their life's journey. Um, um, if they do something valuable and I can see it, then, then great. But, um, you know, it's not the most, it's not, we don't just study senior leaders and I'm not only focused on people that are after their careers. Um, I really like people that are in the throes of a problem, um, that are making that particular kind of decision or decision set or, or that are dealing with, you know, problematic, um, uh, parenting, most ubiquitous leadership act in, in the world. Um, listen, teenagers, wow, no, no simple task. Um, I love to be in, you know, understand how people are dealing with teenagers because it, it brings out the best and worst in them. But in terms of their actions, you know, they're trying everything in their power to have influence. And, and I'm going to learn some really interesting stuff. And, and most people that have teenagers are fairly, still fairly young, right, in their, in their careers and their lives. So there's all kinds of things, um, all kinds of places to find, find wisdom. Talking about finding wisdom uh, behind you, there appears to be a large bookshelf. Are there any books that you've enjoyed throughout the years um, you tend to go back to? Yeah, there's, oh gosh, you got, you got, a, you got a, another show for me to go through all the books. I mean, there's so many, so many books that have been impactful. Um, you know, uh, I'll give you one or two that are not as well known. Um, I'm really a big fan of um, a book called Management of the Absurd, 1990s, like six or so. It's a really unknown book, really, really smart. Um, um, the author, um, and I'll mess up his name, so I, I'm not a I'm not great on names. Um, I'm, I'm about the ideas, not the names. Um, uh, the author makes the, uh, in one of, one of the small, a really small book, by the way, one of the, makes the distinction between problems and dilemmas and the difference between the two. And, and that was really insightful to me when I read it. Um, um, that's a really great book. Um, a guy named uh, Sample used to be the, the president at USC, wrote a book in like 2002 called A Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. Another really one unknown book, um, really good. I mean, re- really, really special book. Um, has a chapter in there on thinking gray. I love that chapter. Um, I make everybody um, who I come in contact with read that chapter because it's all about thinking gray, but it's also about thinking black and white. You got to balance both of those things. And so, um, can't can't make decisions unless you start putting them in blacks and whites. But thinking gray really matters. And so. Um, you know, there's books like that. I, I tend to, I'm a contrarian to gen, generally. And so I, I like, um, I like those things that are not as well known. Um, but if you, if you think about really well-known books, um, or that are pretty popular books, you know, again, I, I'm not highbrow. So, you know, if somebody says something insightful or, or that has a bunch of wisdom in it, um, I don't care if it's written in a sophomoric way or it's very popular or not. So, so I like, I like, um, the talent code. I think that's a really insightful book. I wish it was written a little differently and the like, but, um, but uh, he, that book, um, I think it's da- Daniel, Daniel Coyle. Coyle, Coyle, right? I always say coin, Coyle. Um, um, you know, that's a really smart book. I, I, like, I like that book. I, I could give you 20 others like that. Um, but so I'm always looking for those things like that. Um, um, you know, there's just so much to read and, um, and so much to go through. And, and, you know, people think, um, People aren't reading as much. Well, people are writing a lot. I can tell you that. Um, and so, you know, I'm, my, my Amazon account is, is, is way up there every month. I'm just trying to stay, stay abreast of everything that's going on out there. Um, but uh, there's lots of, gr- lots of great things to read. Yeah, we can, uh, we can dive into some more of those over a nice bottle of wine. I would love the okay. one, one contrarian biography. 
contrarian biography. Read read the Bruce, read the most recent Bruce Springsteen um, uh, biography. Fascinating that somebody at his level of success and stardom could have that much self doubt hmm. and that much paranoia about his own skills, so that of the way that he prepares and practices and like love that Lo- love and love. No, not a lot of deep wisdom in that book, but a lot of confirming wisdom in that book, and um, love that um, uh, that biography. Awesome. I almost picked that up the other day. I didn't. So now I'm regretting that. We'll have to. You you mentioned self-doubt. I have to assume the majority of the leaders you work with, many um, responsible for for some of the the largest deals on Wall Street, they're almost on the other spectrum, right? Where where they almost have too much self-belief. Sometimes. I mean, it can be a real problem. Um, Listen, the the number one thing that gets in everybody's way is ego. Um, Ryan Holiday, ego is the enemy. Mm -hmm. Perfect title. Ego is definitely the enemy and it closes down a lot of things. Um, it makes it so that, you know, people feel like they own things instead of we're stewards of things. They, they don't reach and seek information. You know, if you, when you become senior in an organization, everything is filtered for you. You get very small pieces of truth. And so if you're not out there pushing against that and, and trying to find um, uh, the more candid uh, and unbridled uh, views of things, and you're going to, you're going to wind up, operating from, from limited data and many of much of it false. Um, and so hubris and ego and vanity, um, they're a big deal. Um, profile, that's a really big deal with some of the, the best leaders. Um, the best leaders, the, the most admired leaders, eschew profile. They, they want nothing to do with being well-known or being on, you know, they don't want their face on a coin at all. You know, they, they look at profile as, as, as totally the enemy, you know, prof, profile makes you a target, make, makes you a target for scrutiny or, and, and, and pure jealousy. It makes you target for media investigation. It makes you target targets for lawsuits. Profile makes you nothing but makes you feel good about yourself. And, and then it gets you in trouble, right? So, so there's one that's really contrarian. Um, um, the best leaders I've been around, I've actually tried to, you know, either, either they already have low profile or I try to reduce their profile on purpose. I um, mean, I've been successful in some cases and like, and, and they thank me, thank me for it later. Um, I had a leader once say to me, you're only famous and truly famous when somebody who's crazy thinks they're you and there's no upside to that. And, and I, and I buy that. I love that, that line, right. Um, for, for that exact reason. And so profile, vanity, ego, those are all things that get in people's way. They shut down conversations. Um, I can't tell you how many organizations I've gone into where I've met the, the most senior leaders or leader uh, and I walk into their office and it's a shrine. I mean, you literally feel like you should genuflect when you walk in. And my first conversation with them is, now let me get this straight. Is leadership about you or is it about the other people? Should I feel comfortable? Should I want to be able to open up and do, find you approachable and to discuss anything I want inside your office? Or should I feel like as if, in fact, you know, you are the most amazing, spectacular human being that's ever walked the planet, and I should pretty much be cowed by you as soon as I walk in this office? Like, what, what are you trying to project here? Because they don't even recognize it. They, they don't even see they're proud of themselves, and they should be, by the way. But I tell them, you know, guess what? Take that to your home office, put it in your basement, have your dog come in and genuflect right? But in your office, this needs to be about other people. This needs about the leadership is about not about you. It's about them. And so let's create an environment that's about them. And so let's get rid of, right, all these, you know, famous pictures and all these, you know, these, uh, these, these magazine and, and newspaper clippings and all this nonsense, right? And let's, let's get a conference table and in a place where they can feel comfortable. I mean, so ego is a big deal and hubris is a big deal. 
and then not just on Wall Street. I mean, I, I go lots of other places. And so it's it's a problem almost every place. It's easy when you get to a certain level where you feel self-important. And, um, and uh, you know, you, the object is to fight that. And, and sometimes as an advisor, my whole purpose, my whole role is to help people fight that and, and to see things more accurately and candidly. Um, what's that old line? Angels fly because they, 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 they operate lightly. Um, they see themselves lightly. Um, I, I think you have to see yourself as, I think you have to see your work as tremendously serious and important and you have to see yourself as less so. Hmm. And, and that's what great leaders do. And, um, and so that's a big issue now on wall street and the, those kinds of leaders, you'll find differences just like you find anyplace else. Yeah, Some I, of the best leaders I've ever been around have been in hedge fund managers and private equity leaders and bank leaders and like, and some of the worst leaders I've ever been around have been in that same camp, right? They, you know, they tend to be more extreme in that environment, but, but you can find some really good ones. Yeah. And I, I don't want to limit your work to just that you operate within sport, all, 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 all across uh, different yep. leaders. Multiple yep. times there, you mentioned the importance of, of about being the other people within your organization. This is this is something I'm just so fascinated with in, in developing and skilling up, right? You you want elite performance. What do you do differently within CRA that just helps those people once in the organization develop their talents quicker? It's a series of conversations, and it's all about – I'm a big believer in, in, in emergent meaning, in dialogue. Um, I believe that all the real powerful things happen in dialogue. They happen in conversation. And, and so it's about being purposeful around those conversations. It's about having a set of structured conversations. You don't know exactly what's going to get said or done. You have a general framework, but it's about, and so we, we design um, uh, a set of conversations that last usually more than a, a quarter of time um, weekly where those conversations occur. And then we do clinics all the time where everybody pitches in and starts to ask certain questions about a given situation. If, if you find yourself in this situation or with this kind of a, of an, of an issue, like what, what advice counsel would you, would you bring to bear? Is there anything about admired leadership you bring to bear? When, what, what, what would we, how would we think about the problem? And so when you get a lot of other smart people that are really experienced talking about something, all of a sudden light bulbs go off and, and people, people get better really fast. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, that's one. This, the second one is models. You know, when, when, when you have great models so that you're able to um, videotape, for example, record a great dialogue, a great group to dialogue, and then I can watch that. And then I can say, well, what, what was really good in there? I mean, obviously, you've held this up. I've held this up as, as a piece of excellence. How do I do it differently right now? What, where is that excellence in there? Can, you know, the more models you can collect and create for other people, the better they get really fast. And so if you were, if you had a child, for example, and they wanted to learn how to ride a horse or throw a lacrosse ball or, you know, you, or, or, or to have a certain dance move or, or, or learn a dismount off a, off a jump in gymnastics or whatever, whatever it is, you, you now have YouTube, like you can, you can take them right and you can see like 50 models. How cool is that from a learning standpoint? Well, the same thing is true almost every place else. Like if you're a, if you're a firm that does proposals, scopes of work like ours does, or or you have, you have coaching conversations. There's no reason that you can't collect exemplars. And when you put exemplars in the hands of smart people, they're not just going to plagiarize them. They're, they're going to they're gonna look and find and say, how do I find myself in this thing? And they can get better really fast. So we're big on two things, conversations on the one side and structured conversations, and then models on the other side. No, and, I, uh, 
I think if you put those together, they're really powerful. Yeah, I love those two very, very clear examples there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny what, what's available now. I'm sure even on YouTube, you could find someone dismounting off of a horse into a dance move with a lacrosse stick. So it, it's pretty remarkable what we, what we can find. Me. Yeah. I know you have a sports background. You played golf. So this, this is purely a selfish question. I'm, I'm always intrigued by this. We always hear about the, the person. They just have the it factor. Uh, are, are you familiar with, with people being titles? They just have it? Sure. Yeah, Distill um, this down for me. Is, what is this? I always like the description of Paul Bear Bryant, the Alabama football coach. I don't know who said it, but somebody said he, we don't know what he has, but he has a lot of it. Right. Um, I, I think that's true. I, right. So w- w- when you want to distill down the it factor, you know, there's lots of different things that people are honing into, but what I would tell you is the majority of people that have it from a leadership standpoint, have executive presence or gravitas. And that's a behavioral thing that I, that we can, I can show you how to do it. Right now, you might take a lot of practice and you're going to do it differently than somebody else will do it. But but it's all about the way that you balance right? this idea of 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 markers or cues of status and then markers or cues of being relationally attractive to other people. And when you're too far on one side or the other, which most of us are, we we lose a sense of, of a blended balance. And so we're not we don't have near the presence that other people have. Now, it also requires us to be cool under pressure to articulate ourselves well. There's other things about presence that matters, but the it factor, at least in leadership, tends to be presence. And um, and that is, we can break that down and, and make people better in presence without without a whole lot of, um, uh, of theory or framework and the like. Um, uh, and so that's fun. Um, uh, but to me, that's the it factor. Um, now, if you start talking about athletes that have the it factor, they make things that are really, really hard look really easy because their skillfulness is at a different level, a different tier. And so, so when you watch somebody who's really, really um, athletically superior, what you're going to find is they do the most common things uh, uncommonly. Hmm. And, and as a result, you, it's very difficult for you and I to discern that stuff because they're making it look really easy. That to me is the it factor. Hmm. And, um, and, 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 now I, I can't teach you how to do that athletically. I've, I've never worked with athletes in that particular kind of way. I mean, maybe a little bit from a golfing standpoint, but um, that that's really the, the thing that we talk about. And it's something we're, you know, we're compelled to try to understand better. Um, but I'm really speaking in from as an outcome, right. You know, rather than the process to get to that spot, but you're really talking about people that are just a practice, their deliberate practices happen with such a degree of purpose and intention. And they've been able to, acquire a, a level of skill so much more superior than everyone else that now they have it. And, and the way we know they have it is they just, they do these things and it looks seamless. It looks fluid. It looks, it looks effortless. And, um, and now we know they have it. And so, yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, and it works. It certainly is true in golf. That's, that's for sure. Also. It has me thinking about a basketball example with uh, with James Harden, who, who's one of the best players in the league. And so they did all the data points around every athletic movement he does. And he was 100% average in every single thing he did along with the rest of the NBA, except for one thing. And that was how quickly he could stop. And it was the top 99 percentile. And I, I, that example, I just thought was fantastic. So really cool example. Really cool example. I love that. Yeah. I know we're going to round it out here in a minute. I am wondering, though, you're, you're such a high performer with what you've done multiple decades. Where do you find the most challenge with your work? Hmm, the most challenge. 
Well, listen, um, uh, I have quite a few gatekeepers that um, are between me and working with the most senior leaders in industry. And and oftentimes those gatekeepers will say uh, or ask me the question, where where are you best? Now, I I give them a wrong answer because I want the challenge. Because what I tell them I'm best at, which is also true, is I'm best at the people that think coaching, advising, and getting better as leaders is a bunch of horse, horse shit, you know, horse shit, right? That it's total, you know, this is just soft, feely, touchy-feely stuff that nobody really, doesn't really matter. People don't get that much better. Who you are is who you are. Um, and the idea of actually having a coach and advisor is for other people that, you know, probably, you know, need a crutch, but they don't need that crutch. I love talking to people like that because in an hour I will totally change their mind because what they know really matters to them. And they're really expert at whatever it is they know. And I, I'll have them that them articulate that for me really fast. But once we start talking about issues around leadership and they realize that there's somebody else out there, you know, in this case, me that knows as much about leadership and about how to be effective as they know about what they know, they go, okay, now I want an advisor. Now, now I want a coach. So, so I find the most challenging situations, those where I have to turn people from no go, right? Not interested. Um, in fact, it's more than not interested. I think, you know, this is all nonsense. And I, and I have to turn them quickly within, within one conversation to a point of saying, let's keep talking. I like this. This is, this is not what I expected. That, that is both a challenge and something that I think is really fun. Um, most people would not find that fun, by the way. If I, did the, if I gave those assignments to most of my colleagues, they would say, that is not fun. I don't enjoy those people at all. I love talking to those people because I find it a personal challenge to turn them. And, um, and so that's fun. Uh, that's fun and challenging for me. Um, it's probably not what I'm best at, but um, I'm definitely good at it and, and uh, have proven that over, over a lot of years and so forth. And so um, have, have turned and made a lot of uh, advocates out of people that um, couldn't have been more resistant to begin with. Um, so that would probably be my first response and, um, and, 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 and probably one that I've been consistent for me for a long time. Randall, have you ever seen the movie The Princess Bride? Yes, Yes. <laughs> so this this reminds me of the scene, the sword fighting scene, where he goes, oh. and then he flips it over and he goes, I'm not left-handed. He'd been sword fighting left-handed the entire time. It was weakness. <laughs> so glad you and Inigo Montoya share some similarities there. there. there Two more quick ones here before we round out, get everyone connected with admired leadership. Uh, this might be one of those questions that just annoy you and piss you off, but we'll, we'll see. You, you mentioned you study over 15,000 leaders. I'm wondering, is there's one leader who's just exemplified the most amount of these behaviors overall? Yes, but not that you'd know. And so let me tell you about Dick Morgan. Dick Morgan was really, really special. Um, He was actually an executive at Con Edison in Manhattan, the utility company. And we had the pleasure of studying him in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, And he was really just different. We learned more from him in that one case than probably we learned from any single leader. He was that special of a human being. Um, and as a leader, I mean, he just was just unbelievable. And he, in a utility company of all places, um, with a big union workforce and everything else. And he was so admired that he actually was asked to come out of retirement twice 
And um, so he ran steam operations um, for Con Edison, which if you're around New York City, you realize is a very big, big deal. Almost all the hotels and big buildings operate and run through steam um, underneath the, the, the city. Um, he ran steam operations, retired, and then um, early in his career, he had he had had a, a, a influence over emergency management services, and so they were having problems uh, at the time. and And the CEO uh, actually asked him to come back out of retirement and to run emergency services um, and to fix things with the New York, with New York City and the politicians and everything else, which which he came back and did. And, and so he was just exceptional. He, he just was somebody. Now you would never know about Dick Morgan. Um, unless I told you, and that's true of the majority of the admired leaders that we've studied. They, they don't have the iconic status. Um, if you were ever in Con Edison at that time period, and even probably now, you'd either heard of or knew Dick Morgan. I mean, he was just revered. Um, he was a Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer level, you know, uh, persona. Okay. Now, the sad part about Dick Morgan was um, running emergency services in 2001, still, you know, at the end of his his, his career, 9-11 happened and he went straight to the towers and got all the Con Edison people out except himself. And so he, he perished in 9-11. And, um, and, and what, what a tragedy um, in so many ways because the world was robbed of one of the, the great leaders that we'd ever been around and the like. And um, I was really honored because um, um, I was asked to put together, having studied him, his principles that were spoken at his eulogy. And, um, and by the way, 8,000 people attended his funeral. Um, I'm not even sure, you know, I could get eight to show up to mine, but he had 8,000 people. That's how revered and admired he was. And um, uh, it was, he just was amazing. And I think about him all the time. Um, I tell stories about him all the time. Um, and, and by the way, I don't just tell stories because he perished and he was part of 9-11. I was telling stories like that the moment, you know, soon after we studied him. I mean, he just was that special. Now, We've been around some other really special leaders, some of which you know, some of which you don't. Um, athletic coaches are easy, are the most easy to, to identify with and see. And we've been around some pretty special ones. Um, and we've studied some really, really special ones that are special in particular ways that are really just extraordinary. And you know those names, but of all the leaders we've studied, Dick Morgan is probably Richard Morgan. And, and by the way, at the bottom of the memorial, um, uh, at World Trade today, you'll never see it. Okay, you can see it on the internet if you want. In the steam room, down at the very, very bottom, there's a very small plaque for Dick Morgan hmm. um, that Con Edison uh, de- dedicated and uh, uh, quite a long time ago when the memorial was created. And I, I got a chance to go down and see it. Just, to, just I just needed to see it, and uh, um, just really cool. So. So thanks for asking that. Um, I wish I could give you, you know, like 15 leaders that, you know, you knew instantly. And I would if you really needed me to. But I prefer not to because then then it's like, whoa, like, you know, puts them up to scrutiny and so forth. Um, but he was he was really special. No, thank you for sharing that. I, I love hearing the stories of, of ones we would have never heard before. So that, that was special. That was that was great. You shared that last one here. I am wondering if you could go throughout all of history and you could sit there and, and study and work alongside one leader throughout history. Who would that be? Oh, gosh, there's so many of them. I mean, <laughs> seriously, there's just so many. of them. Um, you know, the, probably the, the, the leader that you have in your head um, that is is. Um, um, is, is in your head, you know, not a great leader and didn't do things that you would consider to be worth emulating that you have the, that the opposite is true is, is Genghis Khan. 
Genghis Khan was one amazing leader in so many ways. What he did to rally um, uh, the, the different tribes and, and the kinds of ways that he did war and the way that he rewarded people and, and how he acknowledged people. I mean, if I could go back and, and, and be protected, by the way, safe, like not killed instantly, um, and be around a leader to learn from, I mean, it, uh, read, go read about Genghis Khan sometime by some of the scholars that actually write about him and read some of the stories. Um, uh, and gosh, would I love the data around Genghis Khan. I mean, unbelievable and how he changed the world. I mean, with some of the ideas that he generated, by the way, I, I could, I could regale you over and over and over again about his creativity and his insight, but you know, currency, contemporary currency came from Genghis Khan. Um, uh, prisons and paroles came from Genghis Khan. Um, um, so many of the modern institutional things that we think that we take for granted. Um, uh, primary education in the U.S., um, where the idea of you know you, you get educated to a certain level, it wasn't the same thing, but but that came from 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 that Mongolian time period, that dynasty. Um, they came from Genghis Khan. Um, I mean, just so so he would be it. Now that's a really strange answer. I realize that people go so so this guy you had on the podcast wants to go be with Genghis Khan. That's the that's the lead. go read about him. You have all the wrong stuff in your head about who Genghis Khan was. And so now, if I take Genghis Khan out of the soup because he would be by far, you know, above uh, anything else. I mean, you know, I'm I'm a U.S. guy. I'm an I'm an American guy. I'm. I'm a guy that believes in U.S. history. You know, if I had one other, it would probably be Meriwether Lewis. Um, Lewis, despite the fact that he, he ended his life um, not in the highest regard and so forth, what he did during the expedition to find the passageway to the Northwest and, and his leadership to be able to take 42 people across you know, 2,000 miles and back without any revolt, and mutiny, no dissension and like, and who he was. If you really get into him, um, like that's somebody else I would really like to have, have had had real conversation with and stood side by side and learned, you know, how did he know to do some of that stuff? Um, amazing. And I don't have a lot of the texture data that I have on more contemporary leaders. Um, um, so I can't, I don't know for sure if I would learn a whole lot from him, but I, I, everything tells me that I would. So those, that would be the more, you know, and that's not contemporary, but that would be the more recent leader. Yeah, you tell a great story uh, in one of the modules around Meriwether Lewis uh, that I really enjoyed because I had not done any research or heard very much about him. Uh, Genghis Khan, surprisingly, this is not the first time he's come up uh, in terms of, of being one of those leaders. And uh, a great introduction to him is Jack Weatherford's book. Uh, yeah, Making Weatherford, Weatherford is the scholar. Yep. Weatherford's the scholar. Um, uh, but there's, um, there, there's, there's a lot of other works out there that can give you some more texture on Genghis Khan. What Wonderful. Yeah. Randall, this, is, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, the, the course is admiredleadership.com. I, I want to make sure we, we talk about it a little bit more. What can someone signing up for this course, what can they expect uh, to receive out of it, in, in addition to, to everything you were so kind with over this past last hour and a half? So, so what Admired Leadership is and, and the digital course is, is we've taken 10 modules of leadership. We could have put as many as 25, but we chose 10. Feedback, you know, um, inspiration, motivation, relationships, making great decisions, holding people accountable. We took 10 modules of leadership. We took 10 behavior behaviors and routines. Think about a behavior as an action that we would engage in. A routine is usually either iterative reaction, actions or something that happens over time. Um, and so we took 10 behaviors, routines, 
in each module. And so a hundred behaviors, routines themselves. And we, we, we cobbled it into a, a course that we think thematically makes sense. The cool part is um, no vertical learning there. You don't have to know one thing to know another thing. You could go any place, just simply spend the 10 minutes, all the videos that explain the behaviors are 10 minutes or less. Then there's outlines and examples and exercises and study questions in each one for all hundred of them. Um, you could be, you could just spend time in just one behavior and, you know, you, you could make a very big impact on your leadership. You change five or six things and really commit yourself to emulate five or six things. Your entire leadership changes stylistically. And, um, and, you know, I have my favorite pieces in, in, in that work. Um, the inspiration motivation stuff is so different and, and so powerful. And it's who, who I want to be as a, as a person, as a leader. And I was so happy to find that stuff. So, you know, my leadership is a particular set of like, you know, mo- most of us want to be better leaders, but we don't know how. And so we read and we talk about it and we attend conferences and admired leadership is how. Is how. It's, the, it's the actual actions of great leaders and things that you and I can do tomorrow. And so it's the how, it's the tool uh, in order to get better. And that's what it is. Yeah, Randall, that's it, admiredleadership.com. It, it'll be linked up here in the show notes. And like I mentioned previously, I, I have no incentive here. Uh, I, I took this course and I have extremely high standards with what gets my attention uh, and then what I learned the most from. And w- without a doubt, this leadership course was the best leadership course I've ever taken. And surprisingly enough, uh, multiple people who've actually been guests on this podcast uh, actually recommended it to me as well. Um, so th- those are some of the most elite high performers on the planet here recommending it as well. So Randall yeah. Stutman, it's admiredleadership.com. I-, I can't thank you enough for-, for joining us here on What Got You There. This was a true pleasure. My, my pleasure. And-, and just recognize that the whole idea is just to get better. Like that's what we're supposed to be. And and, you know, we're supposed to, most of us aren't, aren't uh, uh, as good as we need to be. We're a little too self-satisfied. Um, uh, we like who we are, which we should. Um, we like the effects and the outcomes that we get, which we probably should also. But the object is, you know, never to, get, never to give up. Always, you know, good enough is not good enough and, and to get better. And that's what we put this together for people and to have a bigger influence on, on more people being better leaders. And so if anybody... Uh, um, can get better through this, then we're happy. Thanks for having me. Um, pleasure. It's been great um, getting to know you and um, I'll make sure you get that case of wine sometime shortly. Um, and uh, and in, in the meantime, um, whatever I can do to help people be better leaders, I'm happy to do. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.